Good morning, church. If you've got your Bibles, and I hope that you do, please turn in them to the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation. It is a little bit lighter crowd today. Some people are on their spring break. We could really, we could really pull a fast one on them and, and say that the rapture happened and just not be here next week, right? <laughs> right in the middle of our first Sunday in the book of Revelation. But we're kind, and we won't do that. I've been looking forward to this uh, series, going through this book, uh, with equal parts um, excitement and trepidation. Excitement because I haven't preached through this book yet. I've done a few sermons here and there on some of the letters, but haven't walked through this as we are going to. And so I'm excited about the prospect of that. I'm excited about the challenge of seeking to interpret one of the most difficult books in the Bible to interpret. So I'm excited about that, but I also have a lot of trepidation because it is just that. It is one of the most difficult books in the Bible to interpret. And as a result of that, uh, scholars throughout the ages who are like-minded and definitely a lot more knowledgeable about everything, including the Bible, than I am, fall down on different sides of this. And so we should admit at the outset that we're not going to all agree on everything that's in this. We're just not, right? We're just not going to agree on every little aspect of symbolic language and the timing of events and what they refer to and whether or not there's a literal interpretation or whether we figuratively interpret that, we're going to fall down on different sides of this. And I want you to know that that is okay. It is okay that we don't agree on every jot and tittle of the book of Revelation because we have robust agreement on the things that are primary. And so while we may not all agree on the rapture and the tribulation and uh, the, the millennium and the Antichrist and who that is, if it's anybody, we agree on what is primary. Those things are very secondary to what is primary. And what's primary in this book is that Jesus wins. Jesus has defeated sin and death. That resurrected Christ that we celebrated last Sunday He's coming back. He's coming again in glory. And when he does, he will make all things new. And so we have a robust agreement in those things, even if we don't agree on some of the secondary things. That's okay. And I don't also want to hold out hope to you that as we walk through this and, and you fall down on a different side of some of these things than I do, I, I want to hold out hope to you that I might be wrong and I might change my mind. One of the commentators, I'm reading lots of commentators on different sides of all of these issues, but one of them uh, is a seminary professor in Louisville and also preaches at the church where he attends. And I was listening to uh, some sermons that he did on the book of Revelation, and he said, hey, a few, guys, a few months ago, I was teaching the book of Revelation in a seminary class, and now, as a result of preaching through it, I fall down on a different side now. And so there's hope that if you don't agree with me, maybe, maybe I'll change. Or maybe you'll change. We have to have, as we seek to interpret this book, we have to have what one commentator, I forget who it was, said we have to have a hermeneutic of humility. Because people who are much smarter than at least me and probably you disagree with both of us. And so we have to have great humility when we're seeking to interpret a book like this. So this morning what I want to do is cover just the prologue of Revelation, the first eight verses. And these opening verses will help to set the stage for the rest of the book, but also provide us with somewhat of a roadmap for how to gain a better understanding of what's to come. So let's read in our Bibles Revelation chapter 1, verses 1 through 8. This is the Word of God. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, 
who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood, and made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Let's pray. Father, what a great privilege it is to be able to open this book and know that it is your breath, your gift of truly your gift of revelation to us. We are thankful, God, that you are a God who desires to reveal himself and his plans to his children. And we thank you, Father, for this book. We do begin this study in great humility, bowing before you and you alone, desperate for your spirit to give us the ability to interpret what we find here. Father, help us to uh, do this rightly. Help us to keep our eyes on the main thing as we do this. Father, preserve our unity as a faith family as we unpack some of these strange visions. And Father, most importantly, may you use this book to continue your process of conforming us to the image of your son Jesus so that you might be glorified in us in this church, until you come back. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So let me start by just unpacking these eight verses in kind of a, a quick explanation of what these first eight verses contain. First of all, we see that this is a revelation. This is a revelation that is from God. It's a message that God gave to Jesus Jesus then gave to an angel, the angel gave it to John, and John is now faithfully giving it to the church. And so first the writer is telling us something about the supernatural nature of this message and the supernatural transmission of this message to us. And that's going to tell us something about the kind of literature or the genre of literature that the book of Revelation is. And that's going to be important for us moving forward. And so we're going to look more at that in just a moment. But he tells us this is a supernatural revelation from God, supernaturally transmitted to us in the means that he's described here. Secondly, we're told here of the benefit of reading and studying and obeying this book. We see that in verse 3. He says, Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. That word blessing is the same word that Jesus uses in the Sermon on the Mount when he gives us the Beatitudes in the book of Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew. The, the word means literally happy. And so we could read this verse, happy is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and happy are those who hear and who keep what is written in it. And so we learn at the out, outset, one of the keys to happiness in life is to read and study the book of Revelation, right? No, that's not what he's talking about here. That, that, that word happy, when he uses that word, just as we saw when we looked at the Beatitudes as we studied the Gospel of Matthew a few years ago, that the writer is referring to a state of happy contentment and joy that is a result of observing what it says, hearing what it says, and applying and obeying what it says. And so there's benefit to the Christian and to the church to studying and reading and obeying 
what Revelation is all about. And we know that there are moral and ethical implications to what is written here that we have to obey because he says, and those who keep it or those who obey what is written in it. And if we do, we will be blessed. Blessed is that one who will experience a state of happy contentment and joy at realizing that the past, the present, and the future are all within the purview of a sovereign and holy and good God. And so as we make our way through this book, we need to keep an eye out for things that we're told to do or things that we're told to believe so that we can obey it. And I do hope that in that sense, that it will be a blessing to each of us and to our church family. And then thirdly, in our brief explanation, verses four through eight, turn the focus on Jesus. And that's really the focus of the book of Revelation, Jesus Christ. We're told here in these verses that Jesus is the faithful witness. This is the message from Jesus. He is the faithful witness imparting this message to John. He is the firstborn of the dead, referring to his resurrection. He is the ruler of kings on earth. Later in in the second half of verse 5 and verse 6, we're told that he, he loves us. And that he freed us from our sins by his blood. That's the gospel right there. That he freed us who needed to be freed, who who were in bondage to sin and death. He freed us from our sins by his blood shed on the cross. And that he has made us a kingdom, a priest to his God and Father. And that as a result of this, that he deserves all glory and dominion forever and ever. We're also told in verse 7 that he's coming with the clouds. So right there we have an explicit description that he's coming back, that this resurrected Christ is returning and that his return will be from the heavens. It will be from the sky with the clouds and that it will be visible. We're told here that every eye will see him and that as a result, we're told there at the end of verse 7, all tribes of the earth will wail On account of him. And so while some will delight in his return, some will wail, some will mourn at his return because it will mean judgment for sins. That's the gospel right there, right? That that at his return, at the second coming of Christ, whenever that happens, however that happens, whatever situations are going on at that time, when the glorious Christ returns again in glory, Some will delight in that because we will know that we are his and that he is death through his shed blood on the cross. But others will mourn. Others will wail because they've not placed their faith in Christ and they will know that judgment for their sins is soon approaching. One of the themes of Revelation is its focus on the doctrine of God and the, and the doctrine of Christ, Christology and theology proper. And so we need to be very careful not to so preoccupy our time and our energy and our effort at trying to line up the timeline of events of the consummation of the ages, so much so that we miss some very important lessons about the nature and work of God and that of his son, Jesus Christ. So, That's our opening eight verses in just a brief explanation. The supernatural transmission of a supernatural message. Secondly, the benefit of reading and studying it, and then that the focus is on Jesus. Now, as we transition to interpreting this opening passage, we should note, first of all, that one of the most important interpretive keys to unlocking some of the mysteries of the book of Revelation are found in these opening verses. Because these help us to see what type of genre, what type of literature the book of Revelation is. You know that there are different kinds of literature in the book of the Bible, right? There are different genres. And we can't approach them all the same with respect to trying to interpret their meaning. For example, we can't interpret the book of Psalms the same way we interpret the book of Genesis. One is poetry, the other is historical narrative. We have to interpret them differently. We have to use different interpretive tools to help us understand what they mean, what they're all about. 
We can't interpret the book of Proverbs the same way that we would interpret Paul's letter to the Romans. One is a book of wisdom, and the other is a a letter, an epistle written to a group of people. So there are important hermeneutical, hermeneutics being the study of interpretation, there are important hermeneutical keys that we have to use for each kind of literature. And so at the outset of our study of the book of Revelation, we need to ask what genre is this a part of in order for us to understand and begin our process of interpreting it. So what genre is Revelation? Three things. First of all, Revelation is a letter. It is a letter. We, we see that in these opening verses. Just as with all of the other New Testament letters and epistles, we're given here who the author is. We're told in verse 4, it's John. We're also told that there is an original audience that the letter was written to, also in verse 4, to the seven churches that are in Asia. We're given a greeting, grace and peace to you. We're also at the end of the book, the very last verse, John gives a farewell, a farewell closing, just like we see in many of the, of the other New Testament letters. He says in the very last verse of this book, the grace and the grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. So this is a letter written by an identifiable person to an identifiable audience that live in identifiable locations in Asia. And so it's a letter. Now this is important because any interpretation, make sure that you get, you, you get this, knowing that this is a letter is very important because any interpretation that doesn't take that to, into account, that, that doesn't take into account what this would have meant to the original audience is likely a faulty interpretation, right? Because this was written first and foremost to that original audience. Let me give you an illustration. If I write a letter and somehow you get it, I don't know why you're reading my letter to uh, my wife. Let's say I write a letter to my wife and somehow you intercept it. Maybe, maybe we're both dead and you get it or we're kidnapped. Whatever the reason is, you get my letter that I've written to my wife and you're trying to understand what it says, okay? Now, In order for you to understand some of the nuances of what I'm saying to my wife, you're going to need to know something about me. You're going to need to know something about Susan. You're going to need to know something about our relationship and our our 26 years of marriage. You're going to need to know something of that. And to ignore that stuff is really going to hamper your ability to be able to rightly interpret some of the nuances of what I write in that letter. We know this to be an important part of the interpretive process from studying other New Testament letters. We first have to ask, what did this mean to the original audience? And in order to answer that question, we have to understand something about who that original audience was and what their cultural setting was. So what do we know about both the author as well as the audience? Again, the author self-identifies himself as John in verse 4. We also see that in verse 9 that we'll look at next week. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation. So who was this John? There are lots of Johns in the New Testament, but most Bible scholars today affirm that this is the Apostle John, who also wrote the gospel according to John, who also wrote the three letters, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, that this is the same John who writes the book of Revelation. We know him to be one of the 12 whom Jesus chose to be his disciples, his early followers. He was part of that inner circle of James, John, and Peter. He, along with his brother James, were called the sons of thunder, the sons of their father Zebedee. And they, along with their father Zebedee, were fishermen. We also know from from historical accounts later on that all of the other apostles except for John were executed because of their faith in a risen Christ. They were all martyred because they refused to recant their testimony that Jesus rose from the dead except for John. John, as we're told here in verse 9, 
was exiled to the island of Patmos. Look, at, look there at verse 9 briefly. He says, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island, of, island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. And so because he held firmly to the gospel in general, and because he held firmly to the resurrection of Jesus Christ in particular, he was exiled on this island, this island of Patmos. Scholars tell us that there was a prison mine on that island, and so most likely he was sentenced to that prison camp, basically, and and he was an old man. Most scholars today, the best scholarship, dates the writing of this book to somewhere around the last decade of the first century, during the reign of the Roman emperor Domitian, somewhere around 95, 96 AD. So if you do your math, that's about 62, 63 years after the crucifixion of Christ. And so that would put, if we consider that John was probably a young man in his 20s um, when Jesus was crucified, that this puts him in his mid-80s at the earliest, right? And so he's an old man at this point. And in his old age, instead of compromising in his conviction that the grave was empty, that Jesus had indeed risen from the dead because he is Messiah, instead of compromising those firm convictions that he had, he held on to them. And as a result of that, he was sent to this island as a prisoner in exile. And while he's there, as we'll see next week, he's given this vision that becomes the book of Revelation. So he's the author, or at least the human author, who writes this letter. So who's the letter written to? Well, again, we're told in verse 4 that he writes it to the seven churches that are in Asia. Now, in chapters 2 and 3, we're going to see Jesus give some very specific letters to each of these churches. But what we need to understand here at the outset of our study of the book of Revelation is that the entire letter is written to these churches. Not just just those seven letters in chapters 2 and 3. The entire letter is written to those seven churches. Now, what do we know about them? Well, the book itself tells us that these churches were experiencing persecution from Rome. And there's evidence of that in historical books of persecution under Domitian. Not as bad as there was under Nero, who preceded him, and not as bad as some of the persecution that would come later, even centuries later, under emperors like Diocletian. But under Domitian, there was persecution in the church, so much so that Christians were dying as a result of it. We see that in this book itself. Look at Revelation chapter 2, verse 13. In one of these letters, this is the letter that he wrote uh, that Jesus gave to the church at Pergamum. This is a literal historical church that was in Asia there. And in this letter, he writes this in verse 13. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast my name. And you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. And so Antipas was a, was a real person who lived in Pergamum and was martyred because of their faith in Christ. Also in chapter 6, verse 9, you don't have to turn there, but as Jesus is opening the scroll and opening the seals, when he gets to the fifth seal, John writes this, when he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness that they had borne. And so multiple martyrs there. And so these churches were being persecuted. Why were they being persecuted? Well, because by this time, the Roman emperor was not just a ruler. He was a god to them. And and there was a, a Roman imperial cult that required all citizens to worship the emperor and to participate in their pagan festivals and idolatries. And while the Jewish citizens were exempted from those requirements, the Christians were not. And so if they would not worship the emperor 
or participate in those pagan feasts and festivals and idolatries, then they were subjected to persecution. Now, sometimes the persecution was as mild as being excluded from the marketplace and the Roman trade guilds that severely limited their ability to make income and survive. But other times, as we see here, it was as harsh as martyrdom. But persecution wasn't the only challenge facing these churches. They also faced a challenge from within. Either that of compromising biblical convictions because of the pressure of a secular and idolatrous culture around them, like the church at Pergamum, as we'll see, or the temptation to compromise moral convictions, like the church at Thyatira, who was tempted into sexual immorality by a false prophetess, Jezebel. And we'll see that in a bit, in a few weeks. And so it was the danger of persecution from outside, as well as the danger of compromise from inside that created a very tenuous, very dangerous, very fearful time for the church in this day. It was hard. It was hard to be a Christian during this time. There was suffering. There was loss, persecution, understandable fear, and a very real cost for following Jesus. As I read about that culture, more and more, I see reflections of that culture for us today in our 21st century in America. Increasingly, the church in America today is facing both pressure from without as well as pressure from within to compromise biblically and morally. And more and more, we see that there is a cost to following Jesus. The category called cultural Christian is disappearing. That's not an altogether bad thing because there is a purifying of the church that's occurring as a result of that. But the category of a cultural Christian is, is in my estimation, going away. Because, after all, if you don't really love Jesus, then why would you want to, want to suffer shame for having followed him? There is no cultural benefit today for following Jesus like perhaps there was 30, 40, 50 years ago in America. There's not today. Now more and more there is a cost to following Jesus. Just as Jesus said, pick up your cross and follow me. And more and more, there is culturally a shame involved in identifying yourself as an evangelical, evangelical gospel-believing, Bible-believing follower of Jesus. And I believe, although any persecution that we endure today pales in comparison to what they were enduring in that time, or what Christian brothers and sisters in places like um, China and North Korea and Nigeria and Eritrea and places like that are experiencing today, still... I believe that the persecution of evangelical, Bible-believing, gospel-preaching believers in Christ is growing seemingly unrestrained today. And so there is great relevance to what John writes to the church of his day, to the church of our day today. So Revelation is a letter, and we have to take that into consideration when we seek to interpret it. But it's more than just a letter, it's also prophecy, it's also prophecy. Verse 3 tells us explicitly that it is prophecy. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. So it claims itself to be prophecy. But not only does it claim to be that, it fits the genre of prophetic literature. Prophetic literature is either forthtelling or it is foretelling. Forthtelling is taking the message from God and delivering it to the people. Foretelling is prophesying about something that's going to happen in the future. It is future-oriented. And we have both of those in this particular passage. As it describes the content of this revelation, the content of everything that comes after it in this letter. Look at those first three verses again. Verse 1 says, The revelation of Jesus Christ the revelation of Jesus Christ. That is not just the revelation about Jesus, Jesus Christ. This is his revelation. It comes from him. 
the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave to him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John. So this is, a, this is a word from God, a revelation from God. God gives to Jesus. Jesus gives to the angel. Angel gives to John. And then John delivers it faithfully to the church. So John here is forthtelling this message from God. That is just like the Old Testament saints, the Old Testament prophets. Thus saith the Lord. Here is what God says. That is forthtelling. Look at verse 2 as well. John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. John is saying, what I'm giving to you is the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. I'm faithfully delivering to you what God has given to me. I am forthtelling, right? Thus saith the Lord. But this prophecy is also foretelling. It's telling us something that's going to take place in the future. Isn't that the plain reading of verse 1? The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave to him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. There's a future orientation there. The things that must soon take place. We also see this future aspect of this prophecy alluded to in verse 3. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what's written in it. Why? For the time is near. In other words, the time is not yet. The time is soon, but it's not yet. It's not here now. There is a future orientation to this message. So as a book of prophecy, this is a book that is both foretelling the message from God, but it's also foretelling something that's happening in the future. And the hard part is determining when it's doing which, right? The whole thing is foretelling. That's what John tells us here. This is the message from God through Jesus Christ that was delivered to me. I'm faithfully delivering it. The whole letter, the whole book of Revelation is foretelling. The question is, what parts are foretelling? What parts have a future orientation versus a historical or present orientation? That's the tricky part. Now, there are four schools of thought for how we handle the prophetic material in the book of Revelation. And I want to give these to you briefly. This won't be the only time that we mention them. We'll talk about this as we make our way through this book. But I want to mention them at the outset to kind of give us as a foundation here, okay? Four schools of thought. First of all, preterism. Preterism gets its, uh, gets its name from the Latin praetor, which refers to something in the past. And so preterism affirms that all of the prophetic material in the book of Revelation does not refer to something that's happening in the future, but it refers to something that's already happened, something that's happened in the past, and that most of it happened during the fall of Jerusalem in A.D. 70, is what they'll say. Others affirm a school of thought called futurism. That's the complete opposite side of the spectrum. The futurism says that all the prophetic material in the book of Revelation refers to things that are yet to come, refers to things that are in the future. And consequently, there is absolutely no referent to anything that's in the past or anything that's in the present because everything has a future orientation. All of prophecy points to what's happening in the future. There are two others. Uh, one is called historicism. Uh, historicism suggests that all of the prophetic material in the book of Revelation has to do with what occurs in church history from the resurrection of Jesus until now, right? Until the return of Christ. And so as we make our way through Revelation, the historicist will say that this is tracking the church age. This is just tracking our way through church history, descriptive of what is happening at that particular time. Oddly enough, most of the reformers that we like to quote and read, um, were historicists. Men like Luther and Beza and um, Whitfield and Wesley were all historicists. Uh, another school of thought is idealism. Idealism interprets all prophetic material in the book of Revelation allegorically. That, that it symbolically represents just generalized good and evil and that good through God ends up winning in the end. 
So those are the four primary approaches to understanding all of this prophetic material found in the book of Revelation. And depending on which one you ascribe to, it's going to make a huge difference on how you interpret prophecy in the book of Revelation. Let's take, for example, it's going to be a long while before we get there. But in chapter 17 and 18, we learn about the great prophetess, or excuse me, the great prostitute uh, called Babylon. She has a name written across her forehead, apparently, if we interpret that literally, called Babylon, the great prostitute, and also the beast that comes along with her. Who are they, according to each of these different schools of thought? The, the preterist will say that the great prostitute of chapter 17 and 18 is the Roman Empire of the first century. And that the beast is probably, probably refers to the emperor Nero, who ruled Rome just prior to Domitian. But the futurist will say that the great prostitute is probably some revived Roman empire that's going to happen in the future or some world empire that comes about at that time and that the beast is the ruler of that empire. What about the historicist? Well, put yourself in the shoes of the reformers in the 16th century. Who do you think they would think that the great prostitute is? The Catholic Church. And that's who they said the, the, the great prostitute was. And the beast, or the Antichrist, in their estimation, was unequivocally the Pope, the papacy. That was their affirmation. What about the idealist? For them, the great prostitute is not, some, not any particular uh, ruler or empire. It is just a generalized description of evil in the world. Now, there are strengths and weaknesses to each one of these different schools of thought. The, the preterist view, while rightly considering how the original audience would have understood the prophetic material, rightly taking that into consideration, seems to err by refusing any suggestion that there may be future fulfillment. The futurist, on the opposite side of that, while rightly majoring on what in many cases seems to be the plain reading of the text, that there is a future orientation to some of this, errs by dismissing any suggestion that there may be partial fulfillment by things that are in the present or things that are in the recent past. The historicist, in my estimation, relies far too heavily on the historical setting of the reader, not the first century reader, that would be good, but instead relying on the historical setting and context of the reader whenever he exists throughout the church age. For example, the reformers in the 16th century, while they understood the Antichrist to be the Pope, the historicist of the 20th century did not. Instead, they affirmed that the Antichrist was Hitler, right? And so on we go, depending on what historical setting you find yourself in. So it's a great limitation to that approach. The idealist admittedly offers us the least with any kind of faithful interpretive help. But even this perspective has a strength in that it understands that there are timeless spiritual truths contained in this book that are helpful and encouraging for the church going through any time of suffering and trial and persecution. So the approach that I prefer to take is one that kind of combines them all, right? Some commentators call this the, the eclectic view that combines the strengths of all of them and seeks to avoid the weaknesses of all of them. Commentator Scott, Scott Duvall writes this, The eclectic view combines the strength of several approaches, taking seriously the message to the original readers, while also acknowledging portions of the book that await future fulfillment, and finding relevant spiritual messages for Christians in every age. Taking this approach allows us to see that there may be partial fulfillment in the past with some of this prophecy, but there may be ultimate fulfillment that still awaits us in the future and leaves room for that dual interpretation. So this is the approach that I'm most comfortable with today, right? And so this is the approach that I'm going to use in seeking to interpret some of the more difficult and more fantastic visions that we see later in this book. 
So Revelation is a letter, it's a prophecy, and then thirdly, and most uniquely and mysteriously, it is apocalyptic. It is apocalyptic. To say that Revelation is apocalyptic is really to say that Revelation is a revelation. Because the, the, the book itself is titled after the, very, after the very first word in the Greek. The word revelation in our English translations is the Greek word apocalypsis, which literally just means the revealing or the revelation. But the apocalyptic was an actual genre of literature that was popular with Jewish and Christian writers from about 200 B.C. to about 150 A.D. It was a very familiar um, genre of literature. As such, it shares a lot of common elements with some of the Old Testament prophetic books that we have, namely those like Daniel and Ezekiel and Zechariah. There's a lot of common elements that we see between those kinds of books with the book of Revelation. But in the English language, we have absolutely nothing with which to compare apocalyptic genre. Now, if you do a Google search for apocalyptic movies, every single one of the movies that show up on that list will be movies that have to do with the end of the world, right? Some kind of end of world destruction that happens either because of a natural disaster or disease or a comet coming at the earth or the proverbial zombie apocalypse, right? Apocalypse, as an English word, our connotation of that English word, if you look it up in the dictionary today, it means end of world destruction. But that's not what the Greek word apocalypsis means. Which is why the English translators didn't call this book the apocalypse. Instead, they called it revelation. Because the Greek apocalypsis just means the revealing, the revelation. And so, Our 21st century understanding of apocalyptic genre does nothing to help us come to grips with the apocalyptic genre of John's day and the genre that his readers in the first century would have been very, very familiar with given their cultural setting. To them, the apocalyptic genre was simply a supernatural message that was hidden and is now being revealed in a supernatural way. That's what that genre was was all about. It's a supernatural message that was hidden, mysteriously, veiled, and now it's being revealed in a supernatural way. And so um, graphic language, fantastic visions, and symbolic things like that were very common in this genre of literature. And so descriptions like we find in the book of Revelation, like the four living creatures as we read about in chapter 4, were not strange to the people of that day. They understood them. They're strange to us. Descriptions like the lamb in chapter 5, who we're told was standing as though it had been slain. I don't know how a lamb stands as though it had been slain. And has seven horns and seven eyes. That's strange to us. It would not have been strange to them. They understood the kind of genre that this was and what was being said there. Descriptions like that of the locust in chapter 9 were not strange to them either, but they sure are to us. Listen to how John describes these locusts. In appearance, the locusts were like horses prepared for battle. On their heads were what looked like crowns of gold. Their faces were like human faces. Their hair like women's hair. Their teeth were like lion's teeth. They had breastplates like breastplates of iron. And the noise of their wings was like the noise of many chariots with horses rushing into battle. They have tails and stings like scorpions. Now those are some pretty bad locusts, right? That's a pretty fantastic description of grasshoppers, right? But it would not have been fantastic for his first century readers, they would have understood the context of which, in, in the genre in which this was given. But that kind of language seems strange to us who today have no kind of literary uh, comparison with which to compare this kind of language like they did in that day. And that's, that's what makes the interpretive process of the book of Revelation so desperately difficult. And it's going to require every bit of our hermeneutical skills in order to arrive at a faithful interpretation. And even then, we will not all agree on that interpretation. So it is a letter, 
And we got to take that into consideration when we're interpreting it. It's prophecy. Some of it it's foretelling, and some of it is foretelling. We got to find out which one it is. But it's also apocalyptic, which means that it is strange and weird and hard to interpret. All right? There are two other things I want us to note about this opening passage that I just want us to bring our attention to because they help to set the stage for everything that's come, that comes after this. First, I want us to make note of the writer's use of Old Testament uh, of the Old Testament here. Secondly, I want us to make note of the writer's use of symbolic language. Some of this we've already discussed. First, the way that John begins this letter, it's very reminiscent of the Old Testament prophets and how they would introduce God's pronouncements to the people and to Israel. The same words are used, the same language, the, the same formula of God has given this to me, now I'm giving it to you. Very reminiscent of what, um, what they do. And I mentioned this just briefly here at the outset so that we can see that the writer of Revelation, the Apostle John here, is heavily dependent, heavily dependent on the Hebrew Scriptures, on the Old Testament as we know it today. Commentator G.K. Beale notes that as many as 278 of the 404 verses, it's more than 50%, I can't do math, but that's a lot. As many as 278 of the 404 verses in Revelation contain references to the Old Testament, and that there are over 500 allusions to the Old Testament. Now, those are not direct quotations. There are allusions, but some of them are very recognizable, as we'll see. But over 500 allusions to the Old Testament in this book. Compared with, in all of Paul's writings, in all of his letters, there are less than 200. And so John is heavily dependent on the Old Testament. And so our study of Revelation is going to be a, include a good bit of review of the Old Testament. And so get your fingers ready to flip back and forth as we make our way through this study. But secondly, the symbolic language that we've already mentioned here is really a defining characteristic of this book, and, and much, much ink has been spilled in trying to determine what of that symbolic language should be interpreted literally versus figuratively. And we're going to rely again on all of our best hermeneutical skills and tools in our toolbox in order to try to interpret that and make those interpretive decisions. But regardless of where we land, we should admit here at the outset that it's not an all or nothing predicament that we're in. It's not all one or the other. Sometimes the context will lead us to believe that the symbolic language should be interpreted literally. Other times, we'll look at the context and determine that the language should be um, understood and interpreted figuratively and that it's truly symbolic and it refers to something either in the past, the present, or something that's going to happen in the future. Well, let me just give you a quick example from the text that we read this morning. Look again at verse 4. John to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before his throne. Question, who are the seven spirits that are before his throne? So this is kind of a get your feet wet uh, exercise in interpreting prophetic material. So who are those seven spirits that are before the throne? Is, is John uh, talking about like, like seven, seven, literally seven spirits? Are there seven uh, ghosts, uh, seven spirits, seven angels. What is he talking about here? Well, if we look at verse 4 in its context, we see that the apostle is talking here about the Trinity. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace and peace to you. From whom? From him who is and who was and who is to come. Who's that? It's God the Father, right? And from the seven spirits who are before his throne. But then look at the next verse, verse five. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, the ruler of kings on earth. So John is greeting the, the churches. He says, grace and peace to you from whom? From God the Father, from God the Son, and from God the Holy Spirit. And so the question is, why does he refer to the one Holy Spirit here by referring to him as the seven spirits before the throne? Well, as we'll see throughout this book, Numbers like 7 and 4 and 10 and 12 in that cultural setting were numbers that referred to completeness or fullness and wholeness. 
And so this is a reference to the fullness of God's deity in the Holy Spirit. And so that's where we're going to be each week as we unpack different passages of Scripture. Some of this is going to have to be interpreted literally. Some of it's going to be interpreted symbolically. And we're probably not going to get it right all the time. Let me close our time this morning by just reminding ourselves of the purpose of this book. Why did God, in his divine wisdom, include this particular book in the canon of Scripture? What's the purpose of the book of Revelation? First, what the purpose is not. The purpose of this book is not to give us some kind of puzzle that we're to spend our time trying to figure out. The purpose is not to give us some kind of roadmap that clearly tells us everything that's going to happen in the consummation of the ages. If it was intended to be that, it's a pretty confusing roadmap, right? No, the purpose of the book of Revelation is twofold. The edification of the church and the worship of God. The testimony of this book is that Jesus is coming back. Jesus defeated sin and death at the cross. He proved it in his resurrection. At this moment, he is seated at the right hand of the throne of God, but he will not stay seated forever. We're told in this book that he is returning. He's coming again in glory. And when he does, he will make all things new. And so the message to the church here is to persevere in the face of suffering and persecution. Remain steadfast, immovable in the faith until our king comes back for us. That's the purpose of the church or the purpose of the the book. And the focus of our today and the focus of our eternity is the worship of God. Consider in closing here the doxology that we find in verses five through eight. And I'll close with this. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds And every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Church, let us worship him today with our lips and with our lives in a manner that is reflective of how we will worship him forever in glory. As our closing hymn, we'll proclaim in just a moment, all glory be to Christ our King. All glory be to Christ. His rule and reign we'll ever sing, all glory be to Christ. Let's pray. Father, we do approach this book with a great deal of humility, but also anticipation and excitement. For you have given this book to us as a means of grace. And we thank you so much for it. And we do ask, Father, that you'd speak to us from it. And that, Lord, that you would use the the lessons that we find in this book and the truths that we find in this book to continue your process of conforming us as a people to the image of Christ so that you might be glorified in us and through us until that day when your son does come back to bring us home. We thank you for this book. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.